Judges chapter 4, verse 1. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. So the Lord sold him to the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his forces was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth of the nations. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord because Jabin had 900 iron chariots and he harshly oppressed, he harshly oppressed them 20 years. Deborah, a woman who was a prophetess and the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at that time. It was her custom to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went to her for judgment. Now, after God had raised Ehud to lead the, lead the Israelites in defeating the Moabites, verse 30 of chapter 3 tells us the land was peaceful for 80 years. Unfortunately, although the land may have been at peace, the actions of that generation, the actions of the generations that followed, because how many, I would, I would think there was probably maybe two generations that followed that time, 80 years. Um, the generations that followed revealed their inability to reconcile with God and enjoy his peace. Now this chapter begins by telling us that the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. Now, we're not specifically told the evil they did, but whatever it was, the Lord found it so detestable. He found it so egregious that he had to respond to it. He had to do something about it. So he did what he had done prior to raising Othniel and sold him into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who at that time reigned in Hazor. Now, if these names may sound a little familiar, back in Joshua chapter 11, the story is told how Joshua defeated a king named Jabin and burned down the city of Hazor. However, here in this story, it's a completely different king. And either a completely different king that either had the same name or the name may have been used as a title. Now, by this time, it also appears that Hazor's population had regrown and strengthened under this new king. It also says here that the name of Jabin's military commander was Sisera, who we'll soon see plays a significant role in this story. Now, as, a previous, as in the previous episodes, the pain of oppression causes the Israelites cry out, to Yahweh for help. The author then tells us the two main reasons why they were crying out. First, they felt the pressure of the military force that included 900 chariots of iron. This superior technology may have been what chapter 1 verse 19 was referring to that rendered the Canaanites invincible to the Israeli army. And second, Jabin is said to have oppressed Israel severely for 20 years. Now Oswald Chambers once said, the agony of a man's affliction often is often necessary 
to put him into the right mood to face the fundamental things of life. The psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. It was almost necessary to, to be in this place of affliction, of oppression, so that the Israelites can finally cry out to God, cry out for help. Now in verse 4, the narrator introduces us to the principal character of this story, a woman by the name of Deborah. And here's what we know about her. Now Deborah's name in Hebrew means bee, like the insect. Now usually parents name, during that time parents would name their children often because of something uh, relevant to them. So, um, we're not sure, but uh, her name, we're not sure why, but her parents decided to name her like the insect, like the bee. Now, again, I'm not sure if you knew this, but the only other time the name Deborah is mentioned in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 35. She was Rebecca's nurse as she delivered these children, her, her children. Now, we also are told that Deborah was the, life of, the wife of Lipidoth. Now, this is also interesting because usually when men are mentioned in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, they're often, the men are often associated with the names of their fathers. Like so-and-so was the, the son of so-and-so. But here, Deborah was associated with the name of her husband. Now, I'll get to that later on and why that is, but um, there was an order of things. I mean, she, that's how it was, and, and she respected that. She respected the fact that, again, she was the wife of Lipidoth, and everyone else did. Now, also, Deborah was a woman who accepted her calling as a prophetess of God. Now, this only shattered the social norms of the community of that time, but it also proved that God could use anyone, could use anyone regardless of their gender. And we also know what this pastor tell us that Deborah's justice was dispensed within, Eph within Ephraim, Ephraimite territory under a palm tree. The fact that it's mentioned probably indicates that this palm tree must have been a well-known landmark. Everyone must have known about it because this was Deborah's tree. This was where everyone went to get her wisdom and her judgment. Now, Deborah's role as a prophetess may explain why the Israelites went up to her for judgment. She was wise in judging fairly. And, and as a result, she became Israel's primary leader. However, and this is important to keep in mind also, her role in calling was first and firm, foremost, God's spokes, spokesperson. Now, what I like about this chapter is how God shows us that women are just as capable to lead as men. There are several examples in the Old Testament and the New Testament that this can be seen. Now, prior to this, the only other prophetess that we read about was Miriam. She was Moses' sister. 
but in the New Testament, I mean, there are others that are mentioned as well, but in the New Testament, we have other women that are mentioned as prophetesses um, and were also leaders in, 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 in certain churches. Now, in this particular instance, he chose Deborah to deliver his word to the people, judge wisely in internal disputes, and lead them during a time of crisis. You know, I'm thankful. I'm so thankful that the Lord has given me such a wonderful wife that has some of the same characteristics as Deborah. Now, during those times that I neglected my responsibility, my role to lead, she stepped up. She stepped up and God gave her the wisdom and strength to keep the family grounded in Christ. When I wasn't going to church and when I was at my worst, she was the one taking the small children to church. She was the one that was encouraging them and, and praying with them and praying for me. And she was still giving me wise wisdom, even though I was just acting dumb. But as I said, I was just thankful that the Lord brought this woman into my life. I think every man who isn't married, who isn't yet, um, who hasn't yet given that ring to that woman, should look for these same characteristics in a woman, in a woman that they're considering as a wife. And I also think that women should look to her as an example of a faithful, strong, and courageous woman. And as, a, and as a leader. Now here are some of the characteristics that made her uniquely qualified to fulfill the role that God had called her to. Now Deborah had a relationship with God. And you get a glimpse of it in chapter 5, verse 3, where she says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And, um, and there are other examples in chapter 5 where you can tell she just has this really close connection with God. This really close relationship with God. In order for a woman to be greatly used by God, she must know Him deeply and she must know Him intimately. She must live by the words found in Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Also, the other characteristic, Deborah trusted in God's word. A woman ought to trust God's word for what it is, even if she doesn't like it, even if it doesn't taste good, even if she just doesn't, she doesn't agree with it. She must trust it for what it is, God's word. The Lord said in Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fire. This is the Lord's declaration. And like a hammer, it pulverizes rock. That's what God's word is meant to do. It's meant to crush you, to, to show you who you really are so that you can make some changes, so that he can change you, so you can recognize what needs to be changed in your life. And I know sometimes it doesn't feel good 
leaves a bad taste in your mouth. You're like, ah, Lord, I'd rather ignore that. But it's for your benefit. It's for your good. Next characteristic, Deborah was wise. And we see this again in chapter 5. Um, but one of the best qualities in a woman is wisdom, is her wisdom. But not just her own wisdom, but the wisdom that comes from the Lord. And she had to be wise to, to be able to, to judge the people, to see what needed to be done, to lead them. And that's what a strong woman does. She, she takes the wisdom that she has been given by God and she uses it. She applies it. Proverbs 31, 26 says, She opens her mouth with wisdom and loving instruction is in her tongue. The next characteristic, Deborah had respect for God's order in male leadership. A godly woman would not lose sight of the appropriateness of male leadership. You see, verse 4 tells us that she was known as the wife of Lipidoth. She was his wife. Her role, I mean, yes, her primary role was a prophetess, but first she was his wife, and she respected that. If she really knew and trusted and, and, and loved God, she would, have, she, would have understand, she would have understood the role that God had between a man and a woman, and she respected that. And I think people saw that too, and that might have been another reason why she was chosen to lead. And we also see, later on we'll see this, but she went with Barak to support him in battle and she allowed him to lead. She didn't say, you know what, I'm going to take leadership of this battle, I'm going to take the leadership of, this troop, of these troops and I'm going to go and fight. No, she said, fine, I'll go with you and, and Barak, you, you fight. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11.3, Christ is the head of every man and the man of every head is the woman. Oh, the, I'm sorry, the man, uh, the, and the man is the head of the woman. The last characteristic I see here is that Deborah displayed courage and strength. A godly woman will stand up for what is right, speak the truth, and step up when others are afraid or unable to. She had to do what she had to, she had to do what she needed to do when others wouldn't. Now, if any of you fall short in any of these, all you have to do is just ask the Lord to help build what is incomplete in you, and He will do it. Now, you know, you're not gonna be all the you're not gonna have all these qualities right away. I'm sure that. With Deborah, it took some time for her to develop them. But if you're missing any of these qualities, again, you just have to ask the Lord. He knows what, he, you, know, he knows what you need, and He'll give them to you. James 1.5 says, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. 
so those are their characteristics. I just wanted to do a quick introduction of who Deborah is. So let me um, move on. Let's keep reading here. Verse 6. She summoned Barak, son of Abunoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, deploy the troops to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the Nephthalites and the Zebulonites? Then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's forces, his chariots, and his army at, wa at the Wadi Kishon to fight against you, and I will hand him over to you. Barak said to her, if you, will, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. I will go with you, she said. But you will receive no honor on the road you are about to take because the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. 10,000 men followed him and Deborah also went with him. Now Heber the Kenite had moved away from the Kenites, the son of Hobab, Moses' father-in-law, and pitched his tent between the oak tree of Zaninim, which is near Kadesh. It was reported, excuse me, yes, it was reported to Sisera that Barak's son of Abonam had gone up Mount Tabor. Sisera summoned all his 900 iron chariots and all the people who were with him from Herosheth of the nations to the Wadi Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, to Barak, move on, for this is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord threw Sisera, all his charioteers, and all his army into confusion with the sword before Barak, or Barak. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth of the nations, and the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a single man was left. Let me try to break down the passage here, because I know we read a lot, and explain how it applies to you. In verses 6 and 7, the focus shifts from Deborah, whom God used to respond to Israel's cry for help, to Barak, whom God used to solve the crisis. Deborah summoned Barak because she never believed that God called her alone to deliver Israel. She realized that God would do much more work through Barak. She tells him, hasn't the Lord the God of Israel commanded you? The use of this phrase suggests that Deborah simply confirmed something the Lord had already spoken to Barak. She already knew this. It appears like he, the Lord had already spoken this to Barak, and all Deborah did was confirm it. Deborah then proceeds to tell him everything he's supposed to do and everything God will do for him. Now, unfortunately, instead of accepting God's assurance of victory, Barak's response shows his resistance to the call. He essentially tells Deborah, 
I'll do it if you're physically there with me, revealing the lack of confidence to embark in his mission alone. So do you see that? He, Deborah tells him, Hasn't, this is what the Lord has, has told you. Don't you know this? I mean, you should know. He's, he's already told you. And he's like, uh, Deborah, yeah, uh, I'll go if you go. But if you don't go, I, I, I'm not going to go. Deborah's thinking, Man, you have the victory. God's already told you you have it. You just have to go and, Deborah, uh, go with me and I'll go if you don't go with me. I won't go. And so I can just imagine Deborah scratching her head like, man, what's, what's wrong with you? Well, and we'll see here in just a minute that how, how she uh, responds. But have you ever wondered to yourself how many opportunities you've missed because you refuse to answer God's call to action. How many times has God asked you to do something and you're like, oh, I'm too scared or I need someone to go with me. We often make the excuse that God closed a particular door when in reality, it was us who intentionally closed it because we got scared or because we just didn't like what he wanted us to do. Listen, every great man or woman of faith who you ever looked up to, anybody that you've read biographies about or that you've heard great stories about, whether it's in the Bible or within the church, got there because they stopped being scared and took that step of faith. You know, I've read the biographies of Chuck Smith, of Billy Graham, um, D.L. Moody, just to name a few. And they all didn't know what was ahead, but they just took that step of faith. They believed that if God was truly in it, they would succeed, not because of who they are, but because of who God is. If you feel that God is pushing you in a certain direction, if you feel like He's leading you or He's telling you, go, go there, go do this, go do that, help here, help there. If you feel God pushing you in a certain direction, stop resisting Him, stop fighting Him. And just surrender your will to Him. Surrender yourself to Him. Because you're, you're fighting against God and, and he may say, all right, you know, do your thing, but you're not going to get the full, you're missing out on my blessings. You're missing out on what I'm trying to do through you. And so often we miss that. Because again, we just aren't, are uncomfortable. We don't like it. God has the ability to use each and every single one of you. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't forsaken you. You may have forsaken God, but again, He, will ne he never will. And He wants to use you. So if you feel that, if you feel that push, do it. And you'll see how much He's going to bless you. Now, you may not know exactly how you're going to get there. I didn't know when I, the Lord, I, when I felt the Lord calling me to plant this church. 
I didn't know how I was going to get there. I didn't know how everything, I didn't know how to plan a church. I didn't know what that consisted of. But I know that he was going to be there. And I didn't know, again, you may not know what lies on the other side. But the thing is, if you know him, you should be at peace, knowing that God will lead you there. And will also be there on the other side waiting for you. Again, I don't, this church plant, yes, we just have a few people here, but I trust him and I trust trust him that he knows what he's doing. I'm excited. I'm, you know, and I do, I feel blessed. I have no plans to say, you know what, I give up. This isn't working out. No, I still feel that this is what the Lord is calling me to do. I have a, you know, he's given me a vision and I'm going with it. But I also know what awaits me on the other side. And I'm excited because I know he's going to be there. Well, as we see, she agrees to go, but makes it clear that her accompaniment will strip him of a conquering general's honor, which will instead go to a woman. Now, in addition, her words also hinted that she will be the woman whose hand Sisera will be sold. So Barak assembles the troops God instructed him to prepare. And sure enough, the end of verse 10 tells us that Deborah also went with him. We later see her presence with the army and instructions to Barak identify her as the ultimate leader of the forces that defeat the army of Sisera. Now, verse 11, the author introduces us to a new character named Heber, the Kenite, to pr- just to provide some background on, the significant, on a significant event that occurs later on in the battle. Now, who are the Kenites? Well, they were first mentioned in 116, chapter 1, v- verse 16, and we were told that they were related to Israel, through Moses' father-in-law. Now, Heber the Kenite decided to leave his clan and make his home in Kadesh, Barak's hometown and the place where Barak was raising his army. But instead of staying loyal to Israel, Heber and most of his clan with Israel, and most of his clan allied, allied with Israel's army. I mean, as, I'm sorry, allied with Israel's enemy, Jabin, and likely informed Sisera of Barak's troops' movements. And as we later find out, there were a few members of his household that did remain sympathetic to Israel. Now, although Israel, I mean, although Sisera had been tipped off, notice that it was Deborah who tipped off Barak by calling him to fight Sisera. The rest of the story tells us how Barak and his army defeated Sisera in battle and left him running for his life. Against overwhelming odds, Barak trusted God and God granted him the victory. However, we mustn't forget who ultimately should get the credit for this win. The primary credit goes to God because it was he who went ahead of Barak's army 
and threw Sisera and his army into confusion. And the secondary credit goes to Deborah, who, tell, who told Barak that it was time to fight and encouraged him with God's assurance of victory. Remember, she's the one who said, okay, it's time to get up, it's time to fight, let's go. Yes, Barak had the opportunity to be the hero of this story, but because he failed to completely trust God, the victory instead was credited to Deborah. Her call to get up and fight encouraged him. And there is no doubt that God was still with him as he fought Sisera. That's why it's so important that we surround ourselves with people that will do the same for you. While you're here on this earth, we need Christians. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ to build us up, to build you up and encourage you during those times that you need to fight. God has gifted some of them with the gift of encouragement to minister specifically to you. That gift of encouragement comes from Him. And you'll know. You'll know who they are. Because the words that they give you will make you go out, will just make you feel like you can just go out and conquer the world. You may know one or two people that, that are like that in your life. You need some, you're just down and out and you need some encouragement or you don't know what to do or you just want to give up and you speak to them over the phone and or you see them in person, they give you words and now you're just like, man, I feel great. Well, it's God. God has gifted them with that. And that's why, again, it's important that you surround yourselves with your Christian brothers and sisters. Now, if God has gifted you with that gift of encouragement. Don't neglect it. Use it by applying it. And you may not know, some of you may not know that you have this gift, but if you're the kind of person that can sit down with a friend and just listen and give some words of wisdom and knowledge and, and they feel better afterwards, that may be your gift that God, is, that God has given you. And he may use that to reach so many lost people. So don't neglect it. Use it. Apply it. There's so many Christians that are in desperate need of it. So make that phone call. Write them a letter or an email. Send them a text. Or better yet, meet with them. Visit them. I probably wouldn't be here today if it weren't for those brothers who God had gifted to encourage me. If you ever need some encouragement, let me know. I'd be more than glad to offer it. And if you, any of you, ever have an encouraging word, anything at all, don't hold back. Share it. Because it may be something that I need. It may be something that will minister to me at that particular moment. Something that's been going on in my mind. Something that's heavy within my heart. 
So again, just share it. Don't, don't hold back. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Okay, well, the last time we read about Sisera, he left his chariot and fled on foot. Now let's pick up in verse 17 and read the rest of this chapter. Verse 17. Meanwhile, Sisera had fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was peace between Jabin, king of Azor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael, Jael went out to greet Sisera and said to him, Come in, my lord. Come in with me. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent and she covered him with a rug. She said to her, he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. She opened a container of milk, gave him a drink and covered him again. Then he said to her, stand at the entrance to the tent. If a man comes and asks you, is there a man in here? Say no. While he was sleeping from exhaustion, Heber's wife, Jael, Jael took a tent pig, grabbed a hammer, and went silently into to Sisera. She hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground where he died. When Barak arrived in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to greet him and said to him, Come, I will show you, to, I will show you the man you are looking for. So he went with her, and there was Sisera, lying dead with a tent pig, through his temple. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. The power of the Israelites continued to increase, to continue to increase against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Here, the story takes an unexpected turn. God promised that a woman would defeat Sisera, and we would logically assume that it would have been Deborah. But God had something else in mind. He instead used a completely, totally different woman to accomplish this, to accomplish his will. The story picks up in verse 17, telling us that Sisera had fled on foot to the home of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, because he was an ally of King Jabin. He had decided to, to let go of his uh, familiarities to, to his ties with Israel and became an ally of Israel's enemy. Now here Sisera thinks he's going to find safety and is, hidden a, and is hidden in a place that typically would be off limits to any Israelite, to any of Israeli soldiers who might be searching for this military leader. He thought he was going to be safe going to, to Jael's tent. Now, during that time, the wives usually had a separate 
living quarters than, than the husband. He probably had a few wives and she might have had her own tent. Now on the surface, JL seems to express her culture's hospitality by approaching Sisera, inviting him into the tent, responding to his need for water by giving him milk, and then covering him, him up with a rug. But we soon find out that she's fully aware that this is Israel's enemy. She already knows it. And then we also see that she's, he starts ordering her around. He starts telling her, do this, do that. Now, if you're visiting someone's house, are you going to start ordering them what to do in their own house? Are you going to ask them to lie for you? Well, this was also a great insult to, to Jael. So now Sisera, feeling secure in Jael's tent and just physically drained from the fighting that took place, from the battle, and probably also from the warm milk that he just drank, is soon fast asleep. And as soon as she realizes, realizes that he's passed out, Jael grabs a hammer and a tent peg and it slams it so hard through the temple, through the skull, through the brain, all the way down to the ground. So long, Sisera. Dead. Now when Barak arrives, to Jael's tent to ask if she's seen him. To his surprise, she invites him in. She invites him in to show him the man that he's been pursuing. Now he's probably thinking, yes, this, this Jael is awesome. She's holding this guy for us and we're gonna, we're gonna grab him, we're gonna arrest him, we're gonna kill him. And, and Barak's thinking, I'm gonna get the victory. Deborah was wrong. So he walks in, and the passenger tells us, and there was Sisera lying dead with a tempeg through his temple. This story not only informs us about the gruesome death of King Jabin's mightiest general by the hands of a fearless and loyal woman, but also brings fulfillment to Deborah's warning to Barak that the Lord would sell Sisera into a woman's hand for his refusal to fight on his own. The chapter concludes by telling us that on that day, Israel saw God defeat King Jabin, but that the struggle continued, the struggle against them continued until finally they destroyed him. Now when I read about what Jael did, when I read about what she did to Sisera, there were th two things that came to mind. Two things that were just, that, that the Lord just made, it, made clear to me. Firstly, if you've allowed sin to enter your life, and it's trying to run, it's trying to boss you around, it's trying to tell you what to do, it's already begun to do that, kill it, destroy it, put a temp pig through that sin's temple before it totally makes a mess out of your life. In other, words, in other words, rule over sin before it rules over you. The only reason 
the devil wants to come into your life is to steal the love of God away from you, kill the love and joy within you, and ultimately destroy your life. So here's what you can do to drive that tent pig right through the devil's temple, right through the sin that he's tempting you with or the sin that you've already allowed into your life. Admit the sin that you've allowed to come into your life and confess it. Confess it to God with a heart of genuine repentance. Ask Him to forgive you and then receive it. Receive that forgiveness. Take it. Hold on to it. Don't let go of it. And freely, by your own will, willfully, submit to God's authority. It says in James 4, 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Like Sisera, the sin may appear weak and powerless, but it's only a matter of time before it's going to grow stronger, before it's going to be or it's going to be more dangerous. Think of the damage that could have been caused had she not killed him. What would have happened if Barak would have walked in and not been so pleased that Jael was holding this prisoner or that she was married to the man that, was, that had basically turned his back against Israel and was now an ally of the, of the enemy. What do you think what Barak would have done to the entire, to, to, to her or whoever was in that tent? And what do you think her husband would have said if, she would have, if he would have walked into that tent and saw this man there? Yeah, it wouldn't have been good. The damage would have been severe. Colossians 3.5 says, So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you have nothing to do with sexual immorality impurity lust and evil desires don't be greedy for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world now the second thing that came to mind was how jesus's death and resurrection are kind of like the hammer and the tent pig the jail used you see, the moment you decide to accept Him as your Lord and Savior, you're essentially grabbing this tent peg and this hammer and driving it right through the temple of the devil. By allowing Jesus into your life, you're destroying the most valuable thing to Him, your death. You're destroying it. And that's what he desires for you to die, for you to join him in the pit of hell where he's eventually going to go. He doesn't want you to spend eternity with God. He wants you to spend eternity with him in hell. And that's valuable to him. That's what he wants. And that's why he wants this sin to rule your life and destroy your life and control you. Hebrews 2.14 tells us, Now since the children have flesh, now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, 
Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power over death, that is the devil. Jesus said in, 11, in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And in John three sixteen, and many of you guys know this, tells us the purpose for God doing this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You give your life over to Jesus. You trust Him. You surrender to Him. He becomes the Lord of your life, and Holy Spirit comes live it, to live inside of you. The devil can't touch you anymore. The devil no longer has death over you. The tools to destroy the devil's power over you are within your reach. They're right there. The choice is yours. Believe and trust in Jesus, in Jesus' death and resurrection, or allow the devil to continue to gain power and influence over you. If you choose Jesus Christ, if you want now to surrender your life to him, in a moment, I'm going to lead you in a prayer to do that. But before I close again, I want you to know, now that we've looked at chapter 4, read the poetic version of this story in chapter 5. And you may get a lot more from, from what this, this story here. Meditate on those words and see if any additional insights are there. If the Lord gives you any additional insights, and he want, or is there anything else He reveals to you. Wonderful story here. But again, the Lord may be speaking to you, may be calling you, may be telling you, you know what, it's time, get up and fight. He may be telling you, you know what, destroy that sin. We have an example, two wonderful, real wonder women, Deborah and Jael. Remember them. Keep them in mind. Men, again, if you're single, look for women that have these qualities especially that of Deborah. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for, the, for this story of you've given us. May we see this story and take what, take those things that apply to us, Lord. Whether it's the story of Deborah, Jael, whether it's the story of Barak or Sisera, Lord. Teach us, show us where, what we need to know and what we need to discover about ourselves, Lord. And if you're listening, watching, and you never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, with sincerity, pray this. God, I admit I'm a sinner. I have fallen short. And now I ask that you Forgive me of my sins. Believe Jesus is God. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. So now I receive your forgiveness. 
And now fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord, so that I may walk in obedience to you all the days of my life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for everyone who prayed that, that they may find a good church, a good body of believers that will show them, guide them, disciple them, Lord. And now I also pray for anybody here that needs some encouragement, Lord. May they not leave here without having it, Lord. Bless this, the rest of this time. Bless everyone here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.